Roll Tide, everybody, and welcome to Bama Talk. I'm Steve Sample, and we're going to be talking Crimson Tide worldwide from the cozy confines of Airwave Recording Studio in Birmingham, Alabama. And we think you'll be glad you hit that play button because we've got a guest today that's probably seen more Bama football than anybody we know. He started helping the Tide get ready to roll when Bryant-Denny still had wooden bleachers, and he's still a daily part of the process that's creating so much success. But before we get to our guest, we want to take a minute to mention that it was 30 years ago this week that Coach Bryant passed away, and there's no way I can fail to say something about the man whose destiny would be to make the word dynasty a part of Bama's DNA. He was born in Morrow Bottom, Arkansas, and later moved to Fort Ice, where he grew up with 11 brothers and sisters in circumstances that were at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale. So when he was 13 years old, he came across a man that promised to pay anybody that had wrestled a bear, and the chance to make that kind of money was more that he could pass up. Now, the bear was muzzled, but when the match began, it slipped off, and when young Paul noticed he was bleeding from being bitten, he managed to make it out of the ring before the bear had a chance to bite him again. So the wrestling match was over in no time, but it earned him a nickname that lasted a lifetime. Bear Bryant began playing football in the eighth grade, and by the time he was a senior playing on the offensive line and at defensive end, his team won the Arkansas State Championship. Now, after he signed a scholarship to play at Alabama, he left high school early and he actually earned his diploma by taking courses at Tuscaloosa High School. His coach at Bama was Frank Thomas, who'd played under Newt Rockney at Notre Dame, and the Tide's practice field and baseball stadium are named in his honor. Bear was referred to as the other end on teams that were dominated by the great Don Hudson, who later became an NFL Hall of Famer with the Green Bay Packers. Now, Bear wasn't a great player, but he was a good one, making third-team All-SEC in 1933 and 1935, and he made second-team All-SEC in 1934, the year in which he played against Tennessee with a partly broken leg. Uh, the 1934 team won a national championship and beat Stanford 29-13 in the Rose Bowl. What's little known is that he was actually picked in the fourth round of the 1936 NFL draft by the team that was known back then as the Brooklyn Dodgers. Now, he never played professionally, but he did marry Mary Harmon before they'd both graduated in 1935 in a secret ceremony in Ozark, Alabama, because Coach Thomas frowned on players being married, and he was afraid he'd take his scholarship away. Now, he took his job as an assistant coach for four years under Frank Thomas at Bama, and they went 29-5-3 during that period. He spent a short time as an assistant at Vanderbilt under Red Sanders and had agreed to become the head coach at Arkansas after the 1941 season, but when he heard about the bombing of Pearl Harbor as he was on the way to Fayetteville, he passed on that position with the Pigs and enlisted in the Navy. Now, after he served as an assistant coach for the Georgia Pre-Flight Skycrackers, they made him head coach of the North Carolina Navy Pre-Flight flight team where he coached future NFL star quarterback Otto Graham. At the age of 32, Bryant became the head coach at Maryland and went 6-2-1 and in his only year there, and he left after the school president reinstated a player Bryant had suspended for violating team rules while he was away on a vacation. Then he spent eight years at Kentucky, where he led them to their first SEC title in 1950, and they beat Bud Wilkinson's number one ranked Oklahoma team in the Sugar Bowl. The Cats finished seventh in the nation that year, which was the highest ranking they'd ever achieved. 1954 found him first 
further forging his fame when he took over at Texas A&M and made the journey to Junction. Two years later, they beat Texas to win the Southwest Conference title and a trip to New York City for Heisman Trophy winner John David Crow. Bryant loved A&M and later said the only place he'd leave it for was Alabama. The Tide had had a tough time in the mid-50s, and that's when University of Alabama President Frank Rose made the hire of a lifetime and brought Bear home for the 1958 season. When the media asked Bryant why he left A&M, he said, Mama called. The chemistry that was concocted when Coach reconnected with the college he loved created a quarter century of success that may never be surpassed. We've been blessed with coaches that were and are the best of the best. Wallace Wade, Frank Thomas, Gene Stallings, and now Nick Saban. But it may be a long time before we see someone shine at that level for that long again. During his tenure with the Tide, Coach Bryant led Bama into battle 287 times and won 232 of them. He won six national championships, won or shared 13 SEC titles, went to 24 straight bowls, and had the stadium renamed after him. He dominated the in-state rivalry, he dominated the SEC, and he was the ultimate alpha male on a national scale. His coaching accomplishments truly wrote his name in crimson flame, but those of us that lived in his time know that what really keeps him on our mind and in our hearts is the fact that he loved Alabama and we loved him. He had a larger-than-life aura about him, and no matter who was there, when he entered a room, he became the central figure in it. He was the definition of magnetism and charisma, a kind of presence that is so rare you can only try to share it if you've actually seen it. He was a man among men, a father figure, a leader's leader, a coach's coach, the captain of every ship he ever sailed. Those who knew him and those who dealt with him know without question that a giant walked among us. And I seriously doubt that in this lifetime, we'll see his like again. Our guest today was a star witness to all that, but he's also spent the last five decades officiating practices for every other coach at Alabama, so we'll let him share with you how many snaps that actually amounts to. He's a Tuscaloosa native, a Bama grad, and rumor has it he's a pretty good golfer, too. Now, there are actually four Samuel Edward Conyers in this world, and we've got version number three with us today. Eddie Conyers, how are you doing? Well, you got the best one, <laughs> number three. <laughs> Doing great, Stephen. I appreciate uh, I love hearing from you. Well, I, I, I'm just tickled to death to have you on the show. And, you know, uh, you've spent more time in a striped shirt than most federal prisoners uh, out there on the, uh, you know, officiating practice. So I'm uh, going to be interested to hear what uh, what you've got to say all about. Now, before we get into all that, uh, what kind of things are you up to these days? Well, I, I, I play a lot of golf, and I think about turning pro. Uh, I've been trying to get some money up. I got right at $17 so far. <laughs> but uh, So I, so I, it's I, getting better. Yeah, oh, yeah. No, I play a lot of golf. I, I make talks, by the way. In fact, I'm going to Orange Beach. Uh, today, I'm going Thursday to Orange Beach to uh, make a talk. People are, people are still interested uh, in in the bright methodology and uh long as they are, I'll be glad to tell them from my perspective what I saw. Oh, yeah. Well, for you folks out there listening, Eddie is a very highly in-demand after-dinner speaker, and heck, even before dinner. Uh, and he does a fabulous job with it. Um, I, I, you know, he's been all over the country, and 
uh, is just absolutely super at it. You know, Eddie, I know you've done some officiating around Tuscaloosa, and I know you got started back in the 50s. I think Gordon Pettis had something to do with getting you started. But tell us how you got started working practices for Alabama and when that all played out. Well, Steve, it was, I, I try to say it was 61 or 62. I really think it was probably one or two times in 61. And you mentioned Gordon Pettis. He was uh, an official in the SEC. Yep. And Bryant, uh, his his uh, rationale was, let's, if we get penalties, let's get them on the practice field. And as far as I know, he may have been the first, if certainly not one of the first uh, uh, coaches, uh, collegiate coaches, to use officials at his practices. But anyway, Gordon had moved to Birmingham, and Corny Lastly, who was Bryant's right-hand man at that time, called me trying to get hold of Gordon. Gordon had moved to Birmingham, and Corny's in somewhat of a gap because Bryant has told him to do something, and that means that you better do that. So he asked me if I officiated, and I said yes. Yeah. So he said, well, get out here to practice. And if that was either 61 or 62. I really I really believe it was one time in 61, but really getting started probably 62. But, of course, that's been that's 50. 51 years, isn't it? Goodness gracious. You know, when you started, Joe Namath was on the team. Mal Moore was a backup quarterback. Uh, Bama had won a national championship in 1961 and was headed toward back-to-back titles in 64 and 65. In six seasons, from 61 through 1966, we only lost five games, very much like this last five seasons. What was it like being around that bunch back then? Because they were at the, you know, they were kind of the tip of the spear of this whole thing in the modern era. Could you tell they were headed for that kind of success back then? I, I don't really think that it, it, it was just kind of like a business almost. Coach Bryant touched all bases, and he he gave those players, like Coach Saban does, the absolute best chance to win. And in those days, uh, Coach Bryant's theory was to take a little small finesse guy, and he'd be the big, fast, slow guy. Uh, and and uh, they they were very successful, obviously. But uh, Coach Bryant was was a master at getting you to perform above what you thought you could perform. To well, you know, and another thing too. Uh, back then, they did not have that twenty hour a week. Uh, restriction on practice time that the NCAA uh, is uh, put in place in the last few years, uh, and of course the uh, the the rumors are faint, not rumors, but uh, it's uh, well known that Alabama's practices under Coach Bryant used to go a pretty long time. Uh, I was I would assume you were spending quite a bit more time out there on the field back then than you might now. Well, as you mentioned, it, it then you you were not regulated to your time, and now you are very strictly regulated by the NCAA. But and then and then also, Coach Bryant would have maybe five periods where uh, under uh, well under Perkins and Schuler and you know, Coach Saban, you'll have anywhere from thirteen to fourteen periods. But I think Coach Bryant believed that you did one thing longer than a lot of things shorter. If that makes sense. And we would have four or five periods, and the last period was always listed as NT, which simply meant no time. And he he ended practice at his discretion. And he would usually, from my perspective, he, he would usually try to end it on a high note or a low note. Somebody make a great play. He'd say, you know, that's great. Y'all going in. Somebody make a low. They weren't looking too good. And he said, well, heck, we're not doing any good. Y'all going in. But anyway, the last period was always his time, and it, 
could be extended. <laughs> I would imagine too back then. Of course, Coach Bryant was younger in the early '60s. Uh, did he spend a lot more time down on the field, kind of in a hands-on kind of mode, rather than up in the tower like he did most of the '70s? Oh yeah, he was he was a little bit more hands-on, and certainly than his younger years or in the earlier years. His last years, he had a big foghorn that he had up on his tower, and you could always tell when he was getting ready to say something because you could hear that thing click. And whenever it clicked, grown men pale. <laughs> I've heard some of them talk about uh, you know there was usually a chain on the uh, on the gate up on the uh, on the tower oh, yeah, up there, you, and you, when you, you heard that chain rattling, it wasn't good news. Now, where they used to call it when the chain hit the tower, and, you, and there would be about 200 heads to look, see where it was, and he was coming down, and there was a great opportunity somebody might be going out. Yeah, yeah. When the, cha- when the chain hit the gate, it was about to hit the fan, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, it was, like I say again, grown men pale when they heard that sound. Woo. And yeah. let me put myself in that group. Uh, you know, a lot of great assistant coaches, uh, speaking of grown men, worked at Alabama in the 60s. Dude Hennessy, Ken Donahue, uh, oh, Ken yeah. Meyer, Pat Dye worked there, Gene Stallings, Howard Schnellenberger, just to name a few of them. There were a lot more. Bill Oliver. Bill, Bill oh, Oliver. gosh, yes. Uh, Jimmy Sharp. Uh, who are oh, some yeah. of the ones that made an impression on you in the, in, back in that period that, that kind of stick out in your mind? Well, I have to say, because I stayed with the offense primarily, so Mal Moore uh, would be one. Mal used to get on me quite a bit. In fact, he still he told Coach Saban that I'm an I'm a offensive coach, that I, I call Pensley's only on the defense. But Mal, I, I stayed with him most of the time. People like Donahue and Pat Dye and Bill Oliver with the defense, and, and I really didn't interact with them too much other than when we would have a, a, a team scrimmage, like a team period. Yeah, yeah. But mostly mine were, and, and, and Mal, and of course, uh, uh, they've gone blank now, uh, coach, coach at Miami. Uh, Howard coach, Schnellenberger. Oh, yeah, Howard Schnellenberger. I was with him, and of course, with Dude, and it, it was quite an experience, I'll tell you. It was something I. I I'll never forget. Oh, didn't, didn't deserve, but it was there. Oh, uh, it's wonderful times. You know, we had four years between '67 and '70 where the program slumped a little bit. But when we came back strong in '71, after uh, Coach Bryant put the wishbone in, and we'd gone out to Southern Cal and beat uh, to Los Angeles to beat Southern Cal, and we stayed on top for a long time. That run through the '70s was really amazing. Tell us about watching the team go through that down period, and then what it was like seeing them make their weight back up to where we all know it belongs. Well, <clears throat> I hope you'll excuse this expression, but Coach, I heard him use the expression a lot of time. It was kind of a belly, belly up type period. He said, "Big old lineman get to get up and bump their bellies together, and quarterback go back and throw an interception." He, he, I think pants had kind of caught up. Uh, it, it, Alabama was used to having little good players, and he started running into big good players. I think Nebraska with, uh, I can't think of that, that, Glover, Rich Glover. Rich Glover. He played him in the, in the Orange Bowl, and Rich kind of maybe saw that he had to have bigger ball players. And uh, But the, the wishbone was uh, something that he, from what I understand, he went out to Texas and talked to Darryl, Coach Royal about, 
and he came back, but he kind of had some uh, refinements to the wishbone. They passed a little bit more off of it than other teams would do. Yeah, one and thing you always really got was single coverage, you know, because they had to account oh, yeah. for everybody in the backfield, so you couldn't be double covering and wide out and, and account for everybody in the backfield. And when you had when you had receivers like Perkins on one end and Holman on the other, who you had to double cover both of them, and then you got a quarterback like Terry Davis, real quick feet, he could make great decisions. It was just almost you can't say impossible, but it was very difficult to defend that. Uh, Alabama scored a field goal, you just you the game was over because <laughs> they're going to monopolize the time. Well, you know, I find that wishbone to to a fine tune. You know, I've I've talked about this with a couple of players from back in that era, but you know, everybody talks about how the game's faster now, and in some ways, it certainly is, especially on the perimeter with the outside guys and what we call the skill guys. Uh, of course, it takes a lot of skill to play on the offensive and defensive line these days. But I still say, when you look at tapes and film of those really good wishbone teams all through the 70s, and the offensive linemen are down in that four-point stance, and they are firing off the ball. And by the by the time they hit that uh, defensive front, which took about .0 seconds, uh, they moved the line of scrimmage about a yard and a half forward. So they were firing off the ball. And, and I'm still convinced that the game was really actually much faster on the, on, in the box on the line of scrimmage between the tackles back then. Uh, you know, because it's when you go back and watch those films, it's just amazing. And of course, your lineman averaged 240, 250 pounds. Now you got to be 300, 300 pounds to get on the field. Steve, you really impressed me with your knowledge. I didn't know you were that this knowledgeable about that. But you're exactly right. It was uh, the, the wishbone kind of divided the, the field up into quadrants. And if you came to the line and you had a play call to the right, where you see. Where, you, where they got four and you got four, well, on the other side they, they might have three and you got four. Well, then you changed. You went to that side, and when you got a guy like the key, almost was a quarterback, and he didn't have to be a great quarterback. He had to have quick feet, make quick decisions, and be be smart. But if he comes down the line and and you the the, the end comes the, the end comes for him, he pitches the ball. The end goes out. He cuts up. They cover. He drops back passes. It, it was just. If you got that quarterback in the center, your center, you had to have somebody like Dwight Stevenson or Steve Mott. That your center almost has to handle his man by himself. Uh, you know, Steve, Steve it's, 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 it's funny you mentioned Steve Mott because, of course, I, I still think, and most people think, Dwight Stevenson might be the best center that's ever played the game. And he had an incredible career with the Dolphins after he left Alabama. But Steve, Steve Mott also had a really good NFL career for a number of years, I think, with the Lions, and he may have finished somewhere else. But uh, he, was a, he was a great center. And you oh, never hear anybody yeah. talk about him. Yeah, you're exactly right. Steve was a great one, and Dwight was uh, was really a great one too. They were, but you had to have that great center. His his man, and like I said again, talking about Rich Glover, when you had to double team Rich Glover, well, it kind of it, it negates the, with the wishbone. Yeah, yeah. Because I, you're dealing with numbers. If you got five against five, and you got the option what to do, you got an advantage, you know. Yep. So, so, but anyway, you're right. Steve Mott was a great center, and that was I think. Well, in most any athletic endeavor, you got to be strong down the middle. I talk about that in baseball. You got to have your center. I mean, you catch your pitcher, shortstop, second base, center fielder. I think anything right down the center, and, and with in football, if you got a big old bull fullback. And you got a real smart quarterback, and you got a great center. 
it, it's real difficult to defend that. You got about two or three guys that's got the key on that fullback, so your numbers, you you get that number superiority, and, and you just got an advantage. Well, we saw evidence of that that general concept again about a week and a half ago down in Miami. Uh, you know, after yeah. having so much success in the 60s and 70s, after another set of back-to-back national championships in 78 and 79, we went 10-2 and in 1980. Uh, we won 9, lost 2, and tied 1 in 81, and then went 8-4 and four in 82. Now, that's 27-8-1 and one in three years, the kind of record a lot of teams would have a celebration over, but there was the feeling that the greatest coaching career in college football was coming to an end about that time. What was the feeling in those last couple of years that Coach Bryant was there, you got being so close to what was going on back in those days? Well, he spent a lot more time up on the tower, and uh, he didn't get to interact uh, more person-to-person with the players. But he was totally in charge, believe me, and everybody knew it. He was, he was the most uh, authoritative individual I've been around in a long, long time, and he was—he—he uh, he didn't change too much. Certainly, his philosophy didn't change, and uh, physically, he—he cha- he had to change a little bit because certainly, as we get older, all of us going to change. What was the? What were maybe maybe some of the more interesting or memorable interactions you personally had with Coach Bryant over the years? Because I know, gosh, there you were there with him, right? What a twenty, twenty-one years. Well, he. We had a. I, I would never initiate anything with Coach Bryant. I always waited for him to say something to me if he was going to. I, you'd never go up to him, you know, say, "Hey, Coach, great days as you." And just didn't do that. So I, I never initiated him. But we had one time at the stadium. I remember we were going to have a scrimmage. And by the way, and now when we have a scrimmage, we'll have maybe seven, eight Southeastern Conference officials come in. In those days, I did it by myself. And one time he wanted me to keep time, too. But uh, anyway, we were sitting on the bench, and I was waiting for him to tell me how he wanted the scrimmage conducted. But a big old fullback that we had in those days, I won't mention any names, but he came stomping by, and he ran flat-footed. And I, had, I, I, I broke my rule, and I said something to Coach Brian. I said, Coach, you noticed how old so-and-so runs? I said, he runs flat-footed. If he got up on his toes, wouldn't he be more agile? And he thought about it just very briefly, and then he informed me that the reason he ran like that was his brains were in an inappropriate place. He didn't know how to, <laughs> how to run. And he never broke a smile, as I remember. I suggested, thank you for explaining that to me. Yeah, so Coach Bryant had obviously already analyzed that problem. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know. I uh, of course I know uh, my mom who passed away a couple of years ago worked in, at the Bryant Conference Center, uh, kind of uh, close by there where you worked for a while. The the day Coach Bryant passed away, I was in Hoover here in Birmingham and tried to call my mom who was working at the Continuing Education Department there on campus. The phones were in meltdown; couldn't get a call to go through. It was one of the saddest, darkest days of my life, and it was like that for an awful lot of people. What was going on with you that day? Well, the, the night before, uh, some some lady in Birmingham with Birmingham News called me, and she asked if this was Ed Connors. I said, yes, sir. She said, uh, we have a report that Coach Bryant has gone to the hospital and want to know if you can verify it. 
Well, I didn't have a clue, but I remember I told her, I said, ma'am, if this is a joke, I said, I joke about a lot of things, but certainly I would not joke about this. And she said, no, we've heard he's gone to the hospital. And I said, well, you need to call Sam Bailey, who was uh, Coach Bryant's alter ego at that time. Well, as soon as I hung up, I called Coach Bailey myself, and he said, yeah, he said he was out at uh, a friend of his and said he had kind of an indigestion. They took him to the hospital, and they're going to run some tests on him. Well, I went to the hospital the next morning. I had to see Coach Bailey about something. And I can remember, I saw Coach Bryant sitting on a bed. Of course, I didn't get anywhere near him. I just happened to glance in the room, and he was eating something. I come on back to the university, and when I got back, my wife was calling me, telling me that Coach Bryant had died. And I I can remember, I just, I said, let's not, that can't be. I said, I just. I didn't realize how long it had been since I had seen him. I mean, I left the hospital. But uh, it was a, a shock. When she, I remember leaving. I, was, I don't know where I was going. I was just going somewhere. And my wife called me back and said, no, they had they had put a pacemaker or something, as I remember. And he was going to be okay. But then about 10 minutes later, she called me back and said he died. And it was just, I don't know, it was just, it was just stunning. I, I don't have any... Like, I didn't know where I was or anything. It was, it was such a shock. I, I remember I was in Hoover running errands that day. I walked into a store. I was uh, doing some shopping, and and it was it was, it was was almost like a Twilight Zone episode. I walked in, and everybody was just standing there. There was no music playing or anything. Nobody was moving around. They were just kind of standing there staring at the floor. And I just happened to have an Alabama T-shirt on that day, and somebody looked up at me, and they said, Have you heard? And I knew what they, you know, I knew he'd gone into yeah. the hospital. So I just turned around and went back out in the car and turned the radio on. And I looked up and even, and all up and down Highway 31 there in Hoover, cars were just pulling off the side of the road. And you could see people just sitting there listening to the radio. And uh, stores were closing. People just, people just shut down businesses and went home. Um, it was an amazing thing. And I'm, and I'm not sure... Uh, over the next four years after Ray Perkins took over that I'm not sure when the, when the real shock of it actually wore off. What, you know, Ray came in in a, at a tough time. Um, he really did. You know, uh, even uh, a lot of coaches will say, what you want to do is be the guy that follows the guy that follows the legend. What stood out to you about the four years Perkins was in charge? Well, I, I, go, I get a chance to go to a lot of Alabama alumni meetings and, and uh, I always tell people that, the same thing you just said. He had an, actually an almost impossible task. And, but uh, I tell Alabama people, whether you agree with Perkins, some of the things he did or not, you got your money's worth because he were he was uh, he, he was there early and he stayed late and he loved Alabama. And uh, but we we did pretty well under Perkins. Uh, but he had he had a real tough job as anybody would have had calling Coach Brown. Yeah, goodness gracious! I, I I think we probably owe him a lot more gratitude and thanks than he's really ever gotten. You know, you'd been through the Darwin Holt Chick Granning incident back in the early '60s uh, that really stressed the relationship between Alabama and Georgia Tech. So it was a little awkward when the search committee just plain blew it by not bringing in Bobby Bowden back in around. Well, it was at 87 because yeah. Bobby wanted the job and then wind up hiring Bill Curry. What was it, you know, uh, you were you were around all that. And, of course, now I never had a problem with Bill Curry, but but a lot of alumni and a lot of the older folks 
that had lived through those years where there was kind of that feud going back and forth. Uh, were you know it was it was tough on him to accept Coach Curry. What what was the mood like uh, on the practice field? Those uh, you know when Coach Curry first came in. Well, well, Coach Curry was a very knowledgeable football man. You know he played at Georgia Tech and then he uh, played under Vince Lombardi and he coached at Georgia Tech. In fact, if you remember, he beat Alabama one time. Beat when Coach Brown was here. Yeah, I remember. Uh, Georgia Tech beat Alabama in in Birmingham. Yeah, I try not so to he, talk about it too up. much. Yeah, I tried to commit suicide when I was over. <laughs> hey, you can't kill yourself drinking beer. I've already tried that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but coach... anyway, Coach Coach Curry may have had even a tougher time than than uh, Ray had, the Ray Perkins had, because as you mentioned, the he never was really quite totally accepted. Of course, Perkins being an Alabama man and playing for Bryant. He, at least he was accepted. Perkins and Coach Curry had a difficult time in that a lot of, and I like to say I get a chance to go to a lot of Alabama alumni meetings, so I get the feeling of, of of the alumni. And he never was really totally accepted. Not only, but he was a Georgia Tech guy. In those days, the relationship between Alabama and Georgia Tech was tentative at best. Well, you know, uh, later on when Coach Stallings came in. Uh, Coach Stallings played and coached under Bryant, was on the Cowboys staff under Tom Landry for 14 years. He was a seasoned pro. Tell us a little oh, bit about working with Beebs. He Well, Coach Stallings became uh, – I, I knew him when he when he was an assistant here at Alabama right after Texas A&M. And, uh, so I knew him then, and then later he became really more of a kind of a close – like a personal friend. And, and he was uh, Coach Stallings was a was a down in the dirt, blocking, tackling, no no frills coach. You 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 just out gutted you guy, and, and that, a lot of that of course came from Coach Brown and Coach Landry. But but Coach Stallings was uh, as you know he did a tremendous job. I I can't remember now, but in the years he was here, our one loss record was unbelievable. Oh, one, Not count the first year. Oh, he won seventy games in seven years. Well, we are uh, the clock's running down on us, so we're going to going into the two minute offense here, Eddie. But you know, naturally, we can't talk about coaches at Alabama without talking what about Coach Saban. Uh, you know, you've been there. You're you're at practice every day, and everybody knows Coach Saban works as hard as, gosh, anybody's ever been known to work. What's it like working with Nick Saban? It's a quite a experience. <laughs> he he is very organized. Obviously, he's very regimented. And he truly, from here again, now this is my perspective, but I think this is true. He truly loves what he's doing. I've heard him mention to the players a lot of times, I wish I could stay out here longer, you know. I think he truly loves what he's doing, and he is an absolute master at putting his team in the best position to win in any type of situation. And he's a master at, at getting players to perform beyond what they think they can do. Uh, he, he's he's the best football coach in the United States of America. Now, at doing, we talked a lot about Brian. I remember, I think Coach Brian certainly was the best at his time. Well, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the media mainly about whether or not Coach Saban will stay at Alabama, even though he and Terry have both said any number of times, or at least inferred, they're not going anywhere. What's your take on all that? Well, if I had to say, I, I mean, he's got the best coaching job, collegiate coaching job in the United States of America. 
and I, he's already been to the pros. Uh, he's I think he's more I think he's more comfortable at the college level. Yeah, uh, he 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 can deal differently from his his methodology is more towards a college player. I think, and I, I think he's totally happy here. Well, he's got well, you know, <laughs> everything he wants here, and I I, know, I can't see him going anywhere. Yeah. I, it's hard to imagine him having a better situation with an athletic director that was more sympathetic and more cooperative. I mean, where are you going to go? Well, he's mentioned that any number of times, as you know, in the in the, uh, in the celebration that you just had here recently. He's, he mentions he always mentions the president of the university, the chancellor, and Mal Moore, and what support he gets and the support from the people. And um, I, I think. Personally, I would think he would be here. This would be his last coaching job. You know, we're losing a very small senior class and just a few juniors that are going out early. What do you think next team, next year's team looks like? Uh, that should be well. You got you got a seasoned quarterback coming back. Yeah, you got to go. And you, people don't remember, or maybe don't think about it, but you, you know, uh, Nooney, the, the fullback. We lost the first of the year. He's coming back. You got guys like D. Hart who never played a down. Well, I say they played some on the, coming back. And you've got when you have Coach Saban coaching, you're going to have great players, and they're going to perform to the top of their level. So I, I can't see us, but what we certainly have a representative team. Anyway, well, last but not, not last but not least, I got to say they ought to just give the Mrs. America trophy to your wife Peggy. It's the prettiest thing in the world. How in the world did you get that movie star looking girl to marry you? Would you believe today is my anniversary? Well, happy anniversary! Goodness gracious! <laughs> I won't mention how many years she cheated me. But yeah, I told her I was rich. <laughs> well, be sure and tell her we all said hello and we're thinking about her. It's time for us to go. Now, Eddie, it's just been an absolute joy to be able to talk to you, and I wish we had a whole lot more time. Would you come back and talk to us again sometime? Just give me a call. Hey, man, you you, you be good. Tell Peggy we said hello. Happy anniversary and roll tide. Same to you, Steve. Thanks for calling. Folks, if you want to win the retirement game, you've got to have a good retirement game plan. And let's face it, most of us don't have a good plan in place yet. If you want to start building a better financial future, go to annuitiesalabama.com. They can help you with strategies that are safe and smart that will get you across that retirement goal line. If your 401k or your IRA aren't getting it done, it may be time to make a change to something you feel better about. But the game clock's running, and successful people don't procrastinate. So give this the priority you and your family deserve and do it today. That's annuitiesalabama.com. If you haven't already visited our Bama Talk Facebook page, we're having a lot of fun with it and we're getting feedback from Bama fans from all over the place. I'm just going to come right out and ask you to do us a favor and hit that like button on the right hand side of the Bama Talk Facebook page because we want to be able to brag about having Bama fans in all 50 states and on all five continents taking pride and pulling for the tide. And speaking of faraway places, we want to mention our good friends Gary and Elizabeth Wilkins. They spend nine months out of every year in Africa drilling wells so poor people in impoverished places can have clean drinking water. If you'd like to help support them, please go to buyprovision.org. That's buyprovision.org. 
You know, the great thing about Bama Talk using the podcast format is that you can listen to any of the shows anytime you like, as often as you like. These downloads are free, and hitting the subscribe button makes saving and storing every episode easy and automatic. There's also a free podcast app available so you can download the show to your smartphone or your mobile device. You could listen to Bama Talk while you're shopping for new national championship t-shirts or, or counting the number of days since Auburn's offense actually scored against us. It's up to about 800 now. Or while you're describing what you think Manti Teo's girlfriend may have looked like to a police sketch artist. In any event, we hope you'll keep listening and that you'll tell your friends about us. Well, it's time to head for the locker room, so for James Spann and Mark Phillips and all the folks behind Bama Talk at Big Brains Media, thanks for listening. Till next time, take care, have a blessed day, and roll tide.